Hello, and welcome to Within Normal Limits, COPIC's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant for COPIC, as well as a practicing internal medicine physician. Thank you for listening and helping us further COPIC's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. So after COVID uh, pounded the big cities this spring, uh, it's now really taking over a lot of small town and rural America. And uh, there are reports of lack of hospital beds, lack of staffing, and frontline burnout, uh, which are affecting much of the heartland of America and America's small towns, somewhat similar to what happened in the big cities, but perhaps even more critical because there's not as much capacity uh, to absorb the, uh, the overflow. So joining me to talk a little bit about his experience as a frontline uh, hospitalist at a critical care access hospital is Dr. Connor Graham. Uh, Connor, welcome to uh, Within Normal Limits. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about some of your experience in the, uh, in the clinical setting in the, in the hospital, let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, why don't you uh, start with maybe where you, uh, where you grew up, where you went undergrad and med school. Okay. Um, born and raised in Texas. Uh, grew up in Dallas and uh, went to my undergraduate training at Texas A&M University. And um, after that, I went to the University of Texas in Houston for medical school. Uh, after that, I had enough of Texas and moved out to Hawaii to do my internship and residency in general internal medicine. And you've been a fine selector of locations. You were in Hawaii for a period of time, and now you're uh, practicing clinical medicine when you do uh, outpatient medicine in Boulder, Colorado. But your, your hospital work uh, is uh, some distance away. We won't name the town, but it's a critical access hospital, which serves a very large uh, catchment of rural areas. And uh, Texas A&M is having quite a season this year in, in football. Uh, they're looking, looking really solid. So I'll cheer, cheer on that. And uh, as you know, uh, I have hated the Dallas Cowboys my entire life, but I've started liking them because Dak Prescott plays there now. And uh, that's, that's kind of fun to have that uh, in common with you. So outside of talking about football, what do you like to do with your, with your free time when you're outside of medicine? Uh, mostly golf and skiing. And that's, uh, I think, key to being in Colorado. Um, we have easy access to those things. Yeah, no, it's, it's fabulous. And, and I've, I've golfed with you. I've seen you golf, and I'm reminded of the Warren Buffett quotation. I think it was Warren Buffett who said it where he only bets on companies where the CEOs are terrible at golf. And so <laughs> you and I have played together. I think our patients are almost certainly getting excellent care. We're not spending our time, uh, spending our time golfing. Okay. Well, thanks for that endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's, let's, we'll, we'll switch gears to a, a little more serious mode because this is a serious issue. It's, uh, uh, you know, the, the Midwest, uh, smaller towns around uh, our country are, are just, they're getting brutalized by this and especially, uh, the critical access uh, hospitals are, are now getting crushed. So you were there uh, in this hospital system in the spring and early summer when that surge was happening, and, and certainly you're there now. 
what's what's changed? Uh, how have your numbers gone up or gone down, and how has the acuity of the patients changed? Well, what we really saw, I guess, going back into March timeframe um, and really extending into September, uh, it seemed like we had about, on average, about two to four COVID positive patients in the hospital um, per day. So the total census around two to four, you know, give or take a few. Um, starting about the first and second weeks of October, uh, we were, our census was above 50 patients and has been, has remained that way since, um, of all the patients that we're taking care of in the hospital, um, over the past three to four weeks, 80 to 90% of them have been COVID positive patients. And, um, so that's been an impressive change that really evolved, uh, in September moving into October. And That's, a lot of our, um, the other impactful thing that we had is that so many of the nursing staff uh, came uh, with COVID exposures or COVID positive. And so that's been a huge challenge in the past weeks. Yeah, that sounds like a night and day. Uh, a, you're getting a tremendous uh, number of COVID patients coming in, people who are critically ill. And then the staff who would be there to take care of them are also getting exposed out in the community, are you noticing uh, how's the how's the spirits? Uh, how are the spirits of the staff? How are they doing emotionally with the with the strain of uh, the, the the just the patients being so sick, and obviously they're dying too, and also with probably the increased work burden because of, of fewer staff able to help out. Well, you certainly have seen stress levels go up, um, you know, certainly with nurses and doctors. I think that the challenging thing is that everybody uh, amongst the doctors, everybody has to do a little bit more. And a lot of people are doing things uh, beyond what their normal uh, routine would be, in particular, like the emergency room physicians. Um, you know, when placement is an issue, uh, they are having to take care of patients for many more hours than they normally would have because they just don't have a place to put a patient um, that kind of falls, you know, into the hospitals as well, because, you know, we're, we're trying to discharge patients and, and keep the availability uh, of the hospital. But um, as you well know, the, these patients don't get better fast uh, when they end up in the hospital. You know, these are, you know, prolonged hospitalizations typically. What, so, what duration of stay for a non-intubated uh, patient uh, are you seeing if, uh, let's just say, your average patient comes into this hospital and uh, they're hypoxemic, uh, they're stable, but certainly quite ill. How long would, would they anticipate, would you anticipate they would be in the hospital? It's, uh, my guess would be somewhere in the range of seven to 10 days. And a lot of times at that six, seven, eight day mark, that's when we see a lot of people really fall off a cliff um, you know, where, where they're needing more aggressive uh, ventilator support or BiPAP, set, BiPAP support or being on the mechanical ventilator. Um, once that happens, though, you can count on at least another week, you know, on top of that initial seven to 10 days before they've recovered enough to safely discharge typically. And once you've done a shift, uh, you've taken care of critically ill people, you've had multiple conversations uh, with family members about uh, a sick loved one, a dying loved loved one, uh, then you have to go out, and I assume you have to interact with society in in some fashion. Uh, you know, you 
get food, uh, you're, you're, you're traveling around. What are you noticing as far as the community you're in buying into keeping each other safe? Uh, the, the use of masks, physical distancing, other areas. Do you notice that, that that's changed from the spring? And uh, what's your overall impression of, of how, that, how the citizens of the area where you practice are helping everybody out? Well, I certainly don't see the same type of mask wearing that I would uh, here locally in Colorado. Um, you know, a, you know, if going into a restaurant, you'll see the staff with masks, but um, you know, you typically, uh, you don't. You, I don't see people uh, wearing masks. Um, I mean, there are some, but not the majority, like you would hope. You know, um, I, you know, I have heard even like you know, Walmart, um, of course, has a presence in town and. Uh, I think the people at the good doors at the Walmart uh, trying to enforce mask wearing, I think they get a pretty hard time. Um, so that kind of gives you a little bit of sense of, uh, you know, the community's um, investment in the mask wearing. It's, it's, um, it, I think they've struggled. Yeah. And we're obviously healthcare providers and we want the best for people. I would assume there has to be at least a little bit of cognitive dissonance where you want to just come in and just say, Hey guys, I was just taking care of people dying of this. This is a, this is a serious illness. How are you, how are you holding up under the the strain of just the, the care as well as just kind of having to, to process that uh, cognitive dissonance? Are you able to compartmentalize it and kind of move on or, Tell me about what's going on there. Yeah, mostly done fine. You know, it, it's almost like one of these things we're so busy trying to juggle all these aspects that, uh, you know, sometimes your your mind is just always occupied with uh, with uh, balance where, you know, um, I think sometimes staying busy helps to, you know, uh, deal with uh, all the stressors. I will say, though, that, you know, the, the nursing staff um, in the hospital, who you know, of course, seeing this stuff firsthand, they've definitely taken uh, a leadership role in the community as far as getting messages out through like Facebook. And uh, we've heard about several uh, comments to encourage the community to wear a mask where their Facebook posts have gone viral and really spread through the community. So that, you know, that is very helpful. Um, and uh, hopefully that will make a change for, I think we're still a little bit behind the ball though. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. And I suppose we all just are trying to do the best we can. It just, I find it very frustrating because you look at the countries of New Zealand, Iceland, Australia, Hong Kong, uh, where they've just put the kibosh on the pandemic. And so this doesn't miracle itself from person to person. It spreads through respiratory droplets, aerosolized droplets, and uh, direct physical contact uh, with, uh, with secretions. Uh, so that's out there. Uh, you use protective gear. I guess this is a question. How, how is the protective gear supply? How, are you feeling like you have adequate PPE? You're taking that on and off, I assume, numerous times a day. How are you feeling from a – I mean, you're a relatively young, healthy guy, but you still don't want this infection. Uh, so how, how are you able to protect yourself? Yeah, we actually, that hasn't been uh, an issue. And I, I, I do kind of ask, um, you know, every few days if anybody's heard any inklings of running out of protective equipment. So fortunately, we, we've been good there. Well, the, the hospital does have in place where for N95 masks, for example, uh, those can be uh, sterilized and used uh, three different occasions before disposing of them. So that's that's helped out. Um, the other approach, too, that um, 
you know, you always want to see your patients at bedside, of course, but um, the with a lot of times we'll, to preserve protective equipment, do exams from um, from outside the room. And the ICUs are set up with uh, window doors, so you can really get a good assessment on the patient. Um, and sometimes phone calls as well if a patient's been stable and uh, they appear to be recovering fine. Instead of, instead of going into the room to use equipment, we'll just phone call with them and making sure they don't sound like they're in any sort of respiratory uh, distress. Um, interestingly enough, like for the uh, doing a lung exam on a patient that has COVID, um, you know, most of the majority of their lungs sound totally normal, which is actually kind of surprising for how much oxygen a lot of them are needing. So, you know, the physical exam, um, a lot of times just being visible helps us to save equipment as well. And actually, I think helps protect some of the doctors to a, to a degree as well. You know, we had uh, one of our um, pulmonologists, unfortunately, tested positive for COVID and and was out. So that, that, that created a huge um, strain on the hospital to, to hustle to find a replacement. And um, so I think keep, allowing them to keep a distance is, is helpful for staffing purposes as well as equipment. Yeah, we've, we've talked about that some in some Copic lectures where you know, obviously telehealth and distance is the ultimate PPE. Uh, this is not going to jump through a computer screen and it's not going to penetrate a glass wall in an ICU. So if you're not directly on top of a patient, then there's not going to be, uh, not going to be any transmission. Uh, the other question I have is, I mean, you're a big regional hospital. You get patients from a massive radius uh, from, from where you are, and these aren't all COVID patients, right? Your hospitals existed for quite some time. I mean, you, you used to have these things we referred to as heart attacks and strokes and pneumonias and labor and delivery and GI hemorrhages and uh, 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 cholecystitis, uh, diverticulitis. Where, what's happening to these patients? Where did they, where are they? Well, we really had to divert a lot of non COVID patients coming to the emergency room. Um, we have had to call, um, outside hospitals to accept these patients to help care for them. Um, and that's, uh, I've heard numbers of over 80 facilities that have been called in order to try to find placement for a patient. That's just, that is a huge job to, to take on for, it's a lot of time consumed in, in one patient. Um, and even looking multiple States over to try to uh, find a facility has, has been um, what has had to occur because of that. Um, you know, depending the, it, the days are almost hour by hour in regards to staffing needs. So if um, staffing opens up, where we have somebody that can return, then sometimes we can take those patients in. But um, no, a lot of it is actually uh, looking for placement. It's a big effort. Yeah, the there was an article, or there have been multiple editorials, uh, just asking you know, what happens to those patients. Where do they go away? I mean, sure, the maybe the nose job patient doesn't get their rhinoplasty done because the hospital's taken over by COVID. That's no big loss. But when the MI uh, can't get taken care of acutely with these other critical things. Uh, that's, I think that's the fear a lot of people have. Yeah, we've seen that, especially early on too. There was a, um, in the March, April timeframe when there was a real sense of, Hey, let's stay home. Um, we had, um, several cases where patients were coming in. Um, one example on top of my head was a ruptured appendicitis and I'm sure the patient was uh, not doing well, but really didn't want to come to the hospital because of fears uh, you know, unfortunately, the patient didn't do well and subsequently died because uh, he was, um, you know, from sepsis and he was just too sick um, to uh, to really be treated. But I think a lot of that was, uh, you know, uh, 
fear of coming in. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Speaking of coming in for an appendicitis, you may not remember this, but 15 years ago or 10 <laughs> years ago, you came in and diagnosed my appendicitis and got me uh, promptly taken care of. So I appreciate your bringing me back from the brink of death with that one, Dr. Graham. Thank yeah, I you. do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit also about uh, changes in the care of COVID. I think probably a lot of our audience is not directly involved with COVID patients, just What's different uh, today uh, as opposed to late summer? Is there a difference in the speed at which you're putting them on the steroids or the remdesivir, or I doubt you have access to the monoclonal antibodies uh, or at least easy access to those. What's Is anything different now? Yeah, it has changed quite a bit, actually. I mean, the uh, hydroxychloroquine, of course, was looked at early on, and that was uh, abandoned shortly thereafter. Um, it's been a little bit of an approach of use what we got, uh, to be honest with you. Um, you know, when the studies on dexamethasone came out, of course, that became a standard of care. And that's something that pretty much anybody now that would be admitted to the hospital with COVID is, is started on immediately. Um, remdesivir, um, early on supply was an issue there. So we had to be a little bit judicious in which cases we used it for. Um, fortunately that's gotten better. So we, we've been able to actually, um, start that on, on patients that come in the hospital. So dexamethasone and remdesivir is kind of the standard of care, uh, at the onset. Uh, just recently in the past few weeks, uh, convalescent plasma was made available. So we've, we've tr- uh, tried that as well. If it's available, it hasn't been widely available, uh, but we have started using that. I think the jury is kind of still out on that, but it should be used early on during admissions, it seems like. So we're if, if we do have it, we tend to use it early on rather than uh, as they're getting sicker. Um, and then plus or minus antibiotics, uh, DVT prophylaxis, of course, that's um, been about, that's been, uh, that was noted early on and has, has remained uh, something that we are aggressively making sure that we have that addressed. But um but yeah, you know, if we back backtrack to March, April timeframe, you know, dexamethasone steroids were avoided. Uh, we didn't have remdesivir, certainly didn't have convalescent plasma at that time either. So it's changed quite a bit in the past months. Yeah, and what are you using for uh, DVT prophylaxis? Is there a standard cocktail that you're putting people on? You'll see a lot of different uh, ones. Um, we, you know, met with our intensivists a few weeks ago just to try to streamline things as best we could. Um, in general, floor patients will do low inox 40 milligrams once a day. If their PCU or ICU level of care, we'll make that twice a day. Uh, but you, you, you see a lot of different, um, a, a lot of different regimens for TBT prophylaxis. And does that seem to be working? Have you noticed fewer clotting complications from the spring? It seems to be, yeah. I mean, we do see them, um, but, uh, it seems like a lot of them are, are uh, that I've, I've witnessed personally are after a patient's kind of recovered, gone home, and then they'll come back with a with a clot as well. Um, and so they, it sometimes it seems to be like a little bit of a later later find after COVID recovery. Interesting. That would add insult to injury, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's switch to some uh, good news or some positives. Uh, you know, there is uh, news that there are two highly, highly effective vaccines coming out very soon. I mean, we're recording this on December 2nd. We hope our crack team of podcast assistants will get this out next week sometime. Uh, we probably don't want this out in the summer. Uh, but uh, 
we probably still won't have uh, the vaccines distributed and administered by then, but that's that's looking very positive. Uh, what are your thoughts on the vaccine, specifically uh, how quickly you want to get it and how it might impact uh, things around the hospital? Yeah, I, uh, I will get it as soon as it's offered to me for sure. Um, I, I, you know, from what we're seeing, uh, going back to the staffing issues in the hospital with uh, nurses having to um, call in sick because of their testing positive for COVID and also losing a pulmonary critical care intensivist and also neurosurgeon. Uh, if we can get uh, the healthcare staff immunized so where we're not having these types of uh, staffing shortages, that will help tremendously. And it'll take a lot of stress off of everybody as well. Um, and I'm hopeful, you know, I think we'll have to see how, um, how the vaccine is received by the community as a whole. I think the, as you, often is the case there's going to be some hesitancy to do it early on but uh hopefully um i'm hopeful that the acceptance rate will be pretty high as well yeah and i certainly feel the same way i'm going to get it as quickly as as possible uh we're recording this uh i'm actively in clinic i had patients this morning we're recording this over the over the lunch break and i'm going to go back and see more patients about half of whom have been telehealth about half of whom have been in person and I got to tell you, when I have them turn their head and cough for the hernia exam, even though I've got my mask on, they've got theirs, I always think, wow, I really hope this guy's not spewing COVID uh, on, my, on my head right now. So I want to get uh, vaccinated as quickly as possible. And I think there was an expression in Vietnam and probably World War II also uh, it, where, you know, no one wants to be the last one to die uh, during uh, a, a bad event. So you declare... Uh, victory, the Germans surrender, the Japanese surrender, but some soldier somewhere doesn't know that the war is over and they start shooting at you and you're like, hey, the, it's, it's over, man. And uh, COVID's going to kind of feel that same way to people. They need, uh, you know, we got to keep our guard up, even though we've got the vaccines, we're, we're nowhere near uh, universal immunity. And uh, no one wants to be the last healthcare worker to die of this. And no one wants to be the last healthcare worker to spread this to to the vulnerable population, but certainly good news on the vaccine front. I'm, I'm, I'm right with you on that. So, I'm hopeful that the, uh, even if it can help us get down to the levels that we were seeing kind of in that March and April timeframe, you know, uh, and that, you know, the manageable numbers of COVID cases that would, uh, that would be enough to help out. Yeah, no, that would be uh, for, for sure uh, a, a victory. Uh, so, uh, so Connor, let's, let's wrap this up here. Uh, are there any, points you want to share with uh, with the healthcare audience out there as far as you know what they should be doing uh, for themselves uh, and uh, what they should be doing uh, with their with their patients to to keep their risk low to keep themselves safe you know unfortunately you know i think this is still going to be a long haul even if we get the vaccine so i mean continuing the current measures that we're doing with distancing mask wearing um really, you know, with the hopes of not having healthcare workers have to step away because that puts a huge strain on, on, uh, everyone else. Um, and, uh, like you said, you know, I, I think we, despite getting that vaccine, we're still going to have to be in the thick of this for several more months. Um, if not even another year, you know, before we can really let our guard down. Yeah. And I, I love how the, the points you made are just very simple and straightforward. It's, this is not, uh, higher math. Uh, you wear a mask. 
you physically distance yourself, uh, you wear a face shield if you're around uh, potential airborne secretions, wash your hands a lot, and that measure is, is highly protective. It's, it's good for yourself, it's good for the people you're exposed to, it's better for our healthcare system, it allows us to take care of people in need, not just COVID people, but also people having heart attacks and other uh, issues which are, are, are quite serious as well. So, Dr. Graham, thank you so much for, for joining us. And I got to tell you, I really admire the work you're doing for uh, the citizens of uh, this large area of, of uh, underserved uh, critical access hospital. It's very admirable uh, work you're doing. So uh, thank you for doing that. Well, thanks very much and uh, happy to share.